You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Two months ago, 22-year-old Masa Amini traveled from her hometown in Kurdistan to the Iranian capital, Tehran, to visit her brother. She was arrested by the morality police getting off the subway for failing to cover her hair properly in accordance with Iran's Sharia law. Three days later, she was dead, beaten severely in the head. Iranian women said no more and launched an uprising. Protests and demonstrations have been ongoing ever since. I spoke with Miriam Namazi, a secularist, feminist, and human rights activist, about the uprisings, the history of Sharia law and women's rights in Iran, and how Western feminists can better support Iranian women in their fight for freedom. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with me. It's been many years. <laughs> I think it's been about four or five years since we last talked, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to connecting again. Yes, yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me. I wonder, for those who don't know who you are, can you talk a bit about your background and how you came to be the person you are today, um, an activist fighting Sharia law and, and radical Islam? Well, I'm, I'm very, very usually uncomfortable about speaking about myself. Um, so, but, but generally, I'm Iranian-born, and uh, I um, became a refugee uh, because of the establishment of an Islamic regime in Iran. And so... From my personal experiences, I basically became an activist uh, for refugee rights against uh, the Islamic State. And as an atheist, um, I have been campaigning for the right to apostasy and blasphemy. And of course, um, one of the work that's closest to my heart is defending women's rights. So it, it is based on my own experiences, I guess. Um, but also this need to do something uh, given uh, this monster that we're all faced with, which is religious fundamentalism in general, but Islamism in particular. Mm -hmm. And and why Isla, Isla, Islamism in particular? What is it about this particular religion that is so dangerous? I mean, I wouldn't say that... I know there are people who do think that Islam is, um, you know, not a religion, it's sort of a death uh, cult and, and so on and so forth. But I think all religions are cults, really. And I think all religions could be as dangerous as Islamism is if they had the same access to power. So I think historically we know of examples with regards Christianity. And even today, when we look around the world, the rise of the religious right in um, certain parts of the world, the Buddhist right, for example, in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, or the Hindu right in India, the Christian right, we're seeing the rise of in some parts of Europe, in the United States, the Jewish right, for, for example, 
um, in the Palestinian territories. And we can see how all of them can be really detrimental to uh, people's rights and freedoms, and particularly women. They come for women first, they target women, and they are obsessed with controlling and managing women's bodies. I think with Islamism, it just is a lot worse only because there are so many states now that are considered Islamic states where the 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 law is Sharia and religious law, and it's brutal and medieval and includes things like amputations for stealing, stoning to death for sex outside of marriage, to, um, you know, the death penalty for apostasy, for blasphemy, for heresy, for being gay and having gay sex. So if you look at Iran, for example, there's over 130 um, offenses, so-called offenses that are punishable by death. So obviously, it has very detrimental effects on people's lives and rights. And it's not just in countries under Islamic law like Iran or Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan um, or Pakistan, but even places like Britain where there are Sharia courts. And obviously its criminal code isn't being implemented like stonings or, for example, the death penalty for being an apostate or being gay. But it does deal with family matters, which it considers trivial matters. But as we we know very well, that women's rights violations uh, take place very much in the family sphere. So the right to the lack of rights to divorce, to child custody, the fact that domestic violence is seen to be the prerogative of the husband, a woman's testimony being worth half that of a man. So those are things that also take place in Sharia courts. In Britain, for example. Mm-hmm. What is Sharia law? Sharia law is basically a, a compilation of um, verses of the Quran. Uh, also, it comes from the Hadith, which is the sayings and the practices of Muhammad, Islam's prophet. And it's also based on Islamic jurisprudence. So uh, it's a bit of a you know, a, a, an effort to create a smokescreen when some things, for example, we hear are, it's not in the Quran, so this has nothing to do with Islam or Sharia law. Uh, they'll say it has nothing to do with Islam because, for example, it's not in the Quran. But we know that Sharia is is not just from the Quran, but it includes, as I said, um, the Hadith, which is Muhammad's actions and sayings and also Islamic jurisprudence. So it's a combination of these. For example, stoning to death is not in the Quran, but it is a hadith where a woman comes funnily, well, tragically funnily, she comes and actually begs Muhammad to stone her because she's committed adultery and he refuses and she begs again and comes back a second time and he refuses and then she comes and begs again, asking him to stone her. And, and he's like, all right, then let's let's go and stone you to death. Um, so, you know, for example, that is based on a hadith. So it's, it's a com- combination of these things. And it's, of course, all of these sources are legitimate, acceptable sources um, by Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, of course... Iran wasn't 
always like this. Um, at one point, women weren't forced to veil. Um, they attended university. They socialized. Men and women mixed. Um, and and women generally experienced more rights and, and freedoms. I wonder, can you talk a bit about the situation pre-1979 and versus afterwards? What What was it that happened there? Well, definitely the situation was a lot better prior to an Islamic regime in Iran. But let's not forget also that the Shah's regime was a dictatorship as well. Hence why there was a revolution um, against his rule. And... Um, whilst there were uh, progress made and as a result of also uh, the activism of women's rights campaigners there was a family protection law for example which was dis disbanded and scrapped when the islamic regime came to power um, there were some protections for women uh, but again uh, the reality is that even under the Shah's regime, there was this cozy relationship with the clergy, because as we know, religion is a very useful tool for all governments, but particularly for dictatorships as a way of controlling and managing and policing people. So I think what's important here is to recognize the fact that because things have become worse, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were wonderful before. And I guess the point that needs to be made is that people deserve a lot better than what the Shah was allowing. Um, again, it was a one-party sort of rule. Um, there were uh, political prisoners during his reign. There was torture. There was executions. Uh, there was limited freedom of expression. If anyone criticized him, you know, basically um, religious rule took over from um, and criticism of religion became punishable by death. And under the Shah's regime, it was criticism of the Shah and the monarchy. So, um, in fact, a lot of the people executed under the Islamic regime of Iran were already on the list of the Shah. And a lot of the um, secret service and the the, the sort of Savak, just, they, they just transferred over to doing business as usual under an Islamic regime. So um, I think one of the problems that, that, that took place is the fact that, you know, the Iranian revolution was not an Islamic revolution, but unfortunately it was expropriated by the Islamic movement. And that's why today everybody calls it an Islamic revolution, but it was actually a left-leaning revolution. And it was at a time during the Cold War when Islamism was seen to be a useful tool for U.S. foreign policy and Western governments. So if you recall in Afghanistan, for example, the Mujahideen were trained and armed by the United States in their fight against the Soviet Union. And in Iran too, there's... Um, evidence now because it's it it's now in the public space this information uh, but it's something we've known for a long time but the documents are now available uh, because a certain period of time has passed and now it's available to the public that there were uh, there was a meeting in Guadalupe where western powers 
discussed the situation in Iran and decided that they prefer an Islamic state there, given the fact that it was part of uh, Western government policy to create a green belt or an Islamic belt around the Soviet Union at the time. And so uh, it was very much in line with Western government policy, which is funny today when some sections of the left see the Islamic regime as an anti-imperialist force. Um, of course, it's it's a force now that stands on its own feet. It's causing havoc across the world. But it was very much initially brought to center stage because of this foreign policy um, that favored Islamism as a bulwark against communism. Um, and I think, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. We, we know very well what's happened over the past 40 years. It's been just a, a, a human rights disaster in the numbers of people killed, the repression that's taken place. And what's great, though, now is that whilst people are still being killed, which is heartbreak after heartbreak every single day, uh, that there's also this wonderful resistance that is truly inspiring the world. And, of course, what's going on now is that there are these mass uprisings happening, um, sparked by the death of this young woman, Masa Amini. Mm. Who, who was this woman and what happened? How did she become the spark that lit this fire, as it were? Yeah, well, you know, in Iran, there have been ongoing protests for the past 40 years, and there have been a lot of, a lot, a lot of people killed. Um, and so for the regime, I guess, what they did to Masa Amini seemed very much like business as usual. And um, it it felt like it was the straw that broke the camel's back sort of thing. And, you know, she was a 22-year-old woman, um, Iranian-Kurdish woman. So she was visiting from Saqiz, where she's from, Iranian Kurdistan, uh, visiting Tehran. And she was coming out of a metro with her young teenage brother. And, of course, she was wearing the headscarf because, you know, in Iran, the headscarf is compulsory and if you don't wear it appropriately, you can be beaten, you can be tortured, you can be fined, and you can be imprisoned. And of course, uh, some women have uh, who challenge this. And, and of course, there's been challenges to this compulsory veiling law over many decades now. Um, but some of them have received 10, 15 year sentences just for uh, unveiling in public. So it is this constant challenge that takes place. But Masa was actually wearing her veil. And anyway, they dragged her off because they felt she wasn't properly veiled. She had a few strands of hair showing. And um, when they arrested her, eyewitnesses in the van said that she was beaten very badly. They do have a habit of beating people very violently on their heads to cause maximum damage. And um, it, this was on September 13th, and she died in hospital uh, on September 16th. She basically came to hospital. Um, the hospital said she was brain dead. They said that she had a uh, fracture um, on, to her skull, and um, uh, she was basically brain dead when they brought her to the hospital. She died on the 16th, and uh, when news got out, people started gathering at the hospital, and since then... There have been huge protests 
across many cities in Iran, and it hasn't stopped because they keep killing more people, and um, you know people co- are continuing to come to the streets. What I would say is, it's actually not just regular protests any longer. This is really a woman's revolution. It's led by women, very young women and girls as well. Um, it is um, led by Generation Z, as they call them. So it's the first social generation that's had access to portable digital technology from the beginning. So these are people who are very savvy, who have footprints. So they're not on, you know, nameless faces people as has often been the case in the past. They, they're known, their dreams, their aspirations are known. They've got TikTok accounts, Instagram accounts. And uh, of course, um, they are very clearly against an Islamic state in its entirety. You know, there was a period when uh, in the past where there were those who wanted reform. You know, they have no qualms. They know that reform is not possible. And they want, you know, the the main slogans are we don't want an Islamic state. We don't want an anti-woman state. And of course, this the slogan Woman, Life, Freedom, which uh, started in Rojava, uh, Syrian Kurdistan, and was first raised at her gravesite, at Masa Amini's gravesite. The thing I need to mention, too, is she's Kurdish, so her actual name is Gina. But in Iran, Kurdish names are banned. Uh, and so uh, we all know her by her name, by her Persian name, which is allowed on um, official documents. Uh, we know her as Masa. And on her gravestone, her family had written, you know, you're not going to die. Um, your name is going to become a symbol. And and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, she has become a symbol. And what's interesting, too, is that the Masa Amini hashtag has broken all Twitter records. It's um, uh, been tweeted um 80 million times abroad, and I read recently 250 million times inside Iran. So it has really uh, been the straw that broke the camel's back, basically. Mm -hmm. And how have the Iranian authorities responded to all this? Mm. Well, I mean, harshly, of course, you know, this is a very brutal regime. Um, it's, It's been using weapons of war against civilians, in these past few weeks, over 300 people have been killed. I think nearly 40 of them have been children. Uh, just yesterday, they killed a 10-year-old who was just w- passing by because they are attacking people indiscriminately. Um, they've arrested, imagine, 15,000 people just in the past few weeks. And one government official, I don't know if that's still true today, but Um, I read a few weeks ago, he had said that the average age of those arrested is 15 years old. And as you most probably have heard, the Islamic Assembly or the the Islamic Parliament, um, out of the 290 uh, members of the Majlis, uh, 227 of them have called on the judiciary to execute protesters um, because they are considered enemies against God, because this is God's state and God's rule, then any opposition to the state is opposition to God. And that's one of the 130 plus reasons why you can be executed in Iran. And I know it seems like an impossible thing for them to execute 15,000 people, of course, 
um, particularly because the power they the power relations have shifted, and I think you know the the strength of the protesters, their resilience, the fact that they're not compromising, they're not vacating the streets. Uh, it, it is not in the regime's favor, but they have executed, you know, thousands upon thousands in very short periods of time. So, in the uh, 80s, in 1988, um, in one summer, they executed uh, between five to ten thousand people and buried many of them in mass graves. And they had summary trials where they asked the political prisoners, "Are you?" Um, and also in 1980, 81, and then 1988, uh, they asked, um, are you, for example, religious? Are you a Muslim? If they said no, they were sent to execution. They asked them, do you pray? If they said no, they were sent off to execution. And you're seeing now the trials of some of the protesters that have come up. Um, they are also kangaroo courts. They don't have the right to a lawyer. They're just being tried quickly. Um, and they want to, you know, bring maximum punishment and penalties in order to um, scare society. That's what they've often done. But this this generation doesn't seem to be afraid. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to see what's going to happen. The more support these protesters get, the more likely it is that it will save lives. And that's why it's really key for people to support this young generation out on the streets today. And there have been lots of rallies and support in in the West um, for these women, for these protests and protesters. Um, I mean, what do you, what have you, what's your perspective on the response in the rest, in the West to what's going on over there? Do you think that it's, it's strong enough? Do you think that um, we are responding with enough, you know, power and force. Is there more that should be, that we should be doing? Mm. I mean, I think um, really the response has been wonderful to a large extent. For example, if you look at the rallies, it's the largest protest in support of uh, people in Iran uh, that we've seen in recent history, in our lifetimes, Um you know, so you've got like 80,000 people came out in Berlin, for example, thousands upon thousands in other cities. It's the biggest protest of the Iranian diaspora. And also we've seen a lot of support all across the board from uh, actors and singers and personalities and the public in support of um, this woman's revolution. Um, but of course, it's it's not enough because... You know, people are getting murdered on the streets every day. This regime is still in power. And I think governments can do a lot more in order to um, um, make some sort of, have some sort of impact. And again, by governments, I don't mean governments intervening and carrying out regi regime change from above or interfering in um, the uh, politics of Iran as they have in the past. For example, we know in 1953, they got rid of uh, uh, Mossadegh, uh, a, a prime minister who had nationalized Iranian oil. Or we know in the 79 revolution, they were involved in promoting Islamists because it was useful for po foreign policy at the time of the Cold War. So, 
that sort of response is not the right response. There was a fantastic banner at one of the protests which said, uh, Western leaders, you know, Iranian women don't need saving. What we do need from you is that you stop saving our murderers. And I think that's the key point there, that um, the public, if they put enough pressure on Western governments to stop diplomatic relations with the regime, to expel the ambassadors of this regime, to shut down the embassies, to shut down the Islamic centers that are affiliated with the regime. Um, those are very important steps that can be taken that will push the balance even further in favor of the protesters. And we know this has happened in the past. For example, I remember I actually became active politically um, uh, during the anti-apartheid era. And that was uh, one of the movements that was very close to my heart. And I do remember uh, there was a time when there were investments in South Africa where there was strong relations with the uh, apartheid regime of South Africa. And, you know, the, the Nelson Mandela and the ANC were called terrorist organizations. And there was so much public support for an end to racial apartheid in South Africa that eventually governments were forced to end their relations and to uh, welcome Nelson Mandela and a change in South Africa. So I think that's the sort of thing that's needed is public pressure. Governments will continue to um, support this regime because it's, you know, business as usual. There's always profit to be made. Uh, totalitarian regimes are very good for profit as well. And I think they, they would always prefer fundamentalists to feminists and those who are um, defending um, rights as we see on the streets of Iran. So that sort of support is key, putting pressure on the governments, but also showing your support by coming to rallies, by cutting your hair, women cutting their hair. It's just so moving to see this sort of support by um, writing to um, MPs, um, by uh, keeping th this this uh, fight in the news by you know talking to your friends to your work colleagues tweeting about it keeping it in the news um, all of these are various ways in which um, it can really help um, give support to this women's revolution and the reality is that there are not many women's revolutions in the world you know uh, we know of Rojava in, uh, which is a feminist center in in a war zone. Uh, and now we've got this women's revolution in Iran. These are precious moments uh, for not just women's liberation, but human liberation. And as we know very well, no fight, no struggle is guaranteed. It, it has to be supported. It has to be strengthened. It has to be encouraged in order for it to reach victory. And I think that's where we all have a very important role to play. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, unfortunately, the the modern feminist movement, you know, the third wave, you could call it, um, has been pretty weak on on this issue, on on the veil, um, on you know. I suppose, you know, feminism and the left both in the West have engaged in accusations of Islamophobia towards people like you um, who have criticized 
what's going on in Iran, Sharia law, um, and uh, Islam. And I wonder if you think that, I wonder why you think that is. I mean, I wonder why you think that modern feminists have, have failed to oppose this huge, you know, violent crackdown on women's rights. Um, under the the banner of feminism, you know, they they sort of they seem to believe that that talking about the veil as a choice or or refusing to criticize these kinds of religions is, um, you know, uh, somehow liberating or you know it's an anti racist approach, for example. Hmm. I mean, I think. Uh, I need to, though, before I do answer that, is to make the point that there are a lot of feminists, a lot of secularists, a lot of leftists who do support the women's revolution in Iran. I mean, I work with a lot of uh, feminists and secularists, um, both who are from minority backgrounds and not who have been supporting the right to apostasy and blasphemy, who've been supporting the fight against the veil. Um, I think in general, when we look at uh, the women's revolution in Iran or the feminist um, sort of uh, space that Rojava has created in Syrian Kurdistan, these are left-leaning movements. Because as we know historically and also today, uh, in many struggles, it is the left that is the banner carrier of women's rights, of gay rights, of minority rights, of anti-clericalism and the struggle against religion and dogma um, and that which is taboo. So I think that I, I myself am firmly on the left. So I do see um, that this is very much um, a left-leaning struggle in, in, in many instances. Um, but of course, there are sections uh, of the left and of feminism that don't do that. And um, I think one of the problems is, um, in a way, it's 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 a very positive thing that anti-racist movement has had such an impact in people's lives that they want to be sure that they're not encouraging and promoting racism. So I think that's actually should be something that we credit the anti-racist movement for, um, that it is something that is unacceptable and intolerable, and rightly so. But I think, in a way, this this whole this debate on the veil and on criticism of Islam has uh, it, it's 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 a confused debate because, in reality, criticizing the veil as a tool for policing and managing women's bodies or criticism of religion um, that is misogynist and homophobic and so on and so forth, that these are criticisms of ideas and practices and political movements when you're looking at Islamism that are detrimental to women's rights and lives. And, and that's very different from bigotry against believers. You know, And I think this conflation of um, criticism of Islam and Islamism being the same as attacking believers is something that's very useful for the Islamist movement because it has helped protect it and Islam from criticism. 
And it's still very difficult to do. And of course, it can be life-threatening, as we, we know of many examples, not just in countries where they have power, but also, you know, in the West, Salman Rushdie, Charlie Hebdo, and so on. So um, I think what I would say to these people is that, you know, it is possible to be anti-racist and also anti-fundamentalist. Um, it is possible to be opposed to uh, xenophobia and bigotry against Muslims, uh, but also question um, uh, practices and beliefs that are fundamentally anti-women, as many of them have done with regards to Christianity, for example. Um, you know, so I think that is the example I always give with regards to the veil is that, look, you criticize female genital mutilation. It's not the same as attacking girls and women who've been mutilated. Um, and also criticizing the veil is not the same as attacking women and girls who are very, in many instances forced to wear the veil. And I think the other issue that's important to take um, note of is the fact that defending sort of um, religious rules at during an age of um, the religious right is really defending the religious right and not Muslims. Because many Muslims, um, first of all, they're not necessarily Muslims just because of their background. Many of us can be ex-Muslims and feminists and socialists and, and so on and so forth, but we're all lumped in as Muslims. And also, even if they are believers, they're not necessarily um, in agreement with their fundamentalists. It's like, you know, Gilead and Handmaid's Tale. There are lots of people who don't agree. And just because they're forced to carry on um, to save their lives or for whatever reason, there is always resistance and there is always dissent. And I guess these this section of feminists and the left need to stop siding with the fundamentalists and inside, instead side with those who are dissenting, those who are trying to break taboos and restrictions on women and uh, people's rights. I wonder, I mean, you're an, you're an atheist. Is that, that's correct. You identify as an atheist? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that it's important for feminists to oppose all religion? Um, you know, do you think that religion is inherently depressed, or sorry, oppressive, dangerous, patriarchal? I, I, I do think religion is fundamentally, all religions are fundamentally uh, misogynist and patriarchal. Um, and I think um, if some religions seem that they're like they're not as bad, it's more because they've been put in their place as a result of an enlightenment or a challenge, a sort of anti-clericalism that has put that religion in its place. And of course, we see the minute it has space, it comes back out, it rears its ugly head and attacks uh, women first. So the U.S. is a perfect uh, case in point. I mean, who would think that Roe v. Wade could possibly ever, ever um, be undermined in this way? But give the Christian right just a little finger and look what they do. And I think, you know, that's, for me, that's what religion is. If it seems nicer, if it's giving people soup in soup kitchens and setting up homeless shelters, 
it's because its back is to, is to a wall. But still, even when it's doing those nice, lovely things, there are always conditions for the help that it gives. And it can become very sinister um, uh, the minute it has a hold on particularly those who are vulnerable. So, you know, I do think things like Islamic feminism is an oxymoron. I think you have to choose. You're either going to be a feminist or you're going to promote Islam. The two of them are not compatible. And if you look at Islamic feminists, really their aim is to defend Islam, not feminism. Um, so I think, yeah, feminists, if they really want to be feminists, need to get rid of the religion in their minds and the, the sort of, um, and to challenge religion in every step of the way. I mean, it's funny, we... Um, we produced a women's Quran, um, and basically it's it's blank because we found nothing useful for women in the Quran, and uh, we've um, left it blank so people can write their own verses that would be more women friendly because there isn't any, um, and I think that applies to all religions across the board. One of the the main conflicts I've had in in my feminism and in my dealings with other feminists is that you know i'm i'm now like a major advocate for free speech um free speech for all of course you know that's what free speech mm. is and i've been frustrated that so many feminists refuse to support free speech um sometimes they'll say that they support free speech except for the speech of yada 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 um which again doesn't really constitute free speech i mean i just i think that it's such a fundamental a fundamental thing for society for a free society for democracy um i think we're in really 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 big trouble if we don't have free speech and and particularly for these kinds of movements for women's movements for um, you know, movements for like gay liberation, anti-racist movements, those were all successful because of free speech. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of, I'm a bit confused as to why Western feminists so often won't support free speech. And, you know, I, I know that you've written about the connection between the the horrific attack on Salman Rushdie and the 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 uprising in Iran and and the fight for women's liberation there i i wonder what you would like to tell feminists about the importance of free speech and and about that connection well again i think that um there are many Western feminists that do support free speech, and I work with many of them. So I think, again, there is a section, and I think we have to be careful because very often we hear, particularly on the right, uh, you know, this thing about the left in the West, feminists in the West, and it's really, they themselves always want to limit free speech. If you criticize uh, the Tories, or you criticize Brexit, they tell you to get on a boat and go back home right away. So um, they they definitely um, are also not in favor of full free speech, but they use these very often, this idea of cancel culture. The right wing actually 
promotes cancel culture all the time. They cancel people, not just ideas and not just words. But um, it, it's often used as a way of attacking the left and feminists. So I do think it's important to always um, preface everything by saying that it is sections of the left and sections of feminists, because I consider myself as part of the feminist movement and very much on the left. And um, for me, free speech is, as you say, very key. And I think the issue with free speech and free expression, so it's more than speech, but it's how we, you know, for me, uh, topless protest, nude protest is part of that expression, um, using our, um, our, our hands, our voices, uh, everything we have at our disposal to be able to question those in power and to be able to challenge uh, what's wrong in our societies and to bring about change. And I think the important thing about free speech and expression is that it is really the only tool, when you think about it fundamentally, that is available to those who have no power. And therefore, it has to be unconditional It because it is such a cornerstone for those who have nothing else. You know, uh, those of us who are activists against you know, monstrous regimes and violations of rights. All we have is our words and our bodies in order to be able to um, to, to challenge guns and bullets and, and repression, you know. So I think anyone who cares about fundamental rights and dignity must defend free speech and expression uh, because it is a defense of actually the powerless to do that. I think the problem is that some sections do see free speech, see language as violence, and that is not true. Violence is violence. Um, and interestingly, these very same people will make excuses when Charlie Hebdo is attacked and when people are killed you know, well, it was a provocation. Um, but, you know, if you criticize Islam, suddenly that is akin to violence and harm against uh, Muslims, you know. So it's it's a very hypocritical sort of, um, and, and it's not consistent either. Um, so I think that as long as there's no incitement to violence, that expression has to be free, uh, because that's all we have at our disposal, you know. And I think um, if we start having ifs and buts, that's a way of limiting it. And the the other point I always make is, look, freedom of speech is not uh, something that a community or a state or my family or the patriarch decides. It's mine. It's one of my individual human rights. And therefore, I will decide, thank you very much, how I will use it. You don't think topless protest is appropriate? Well, don't do it. But I do think it's an important way of challenging religion and the religious right. And because it is my freedom of expression, I'll do with it as I choose. Um, and so I think these things need to be made, made clear. One, it's a, it's an individual right. You have no say in what I say and what I do. And when you add buts and ifs to it, you're only adding to the censorship that's already being imposed from above by those in power. And, um, um, you know, when we look historically at how the world has changed, it has been by breaking taboos by saying the unsayable, really. And uh, and 
that is important work that has to be done. And we have to do it against religion as well. After all, religion is just an idea. And are we saying that some ideas cannot be questioned? And if that's the case, then, you know, why should other ideas be questioned? There can always be ifs and buts around anything um, if we allow it. And we have to make it unconditional for it to have any meaning. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, where do you hope these protests will lead? Where do you see this going in, you know, an ideal scenario? I mean, I think these protests, which is a women's revolution in Iran, the women's revolution now that we're, we're witnessing, um, it's going to bring an end to Islamic rule. And I think that will have fundamental effects across the globe, not just in Afghanistan and Iraq and Pakistan in the region, but across the globe. And this is because the establishment of an Islamic regime in Iran um, on the back of a people's revolution, even though it expropriated and suppressed um, and killed many people in order to establish itself, um, it's known as something that's it's now called the Islamic Revolution. And that's why there is this sort of romanticism around it, despite the hundreds of thousands that it's killed and how, how what a monster and beast it really is. Um, so I think um, if you have in turn a woman's revolution that is secular, that is uh, pushing forth universal slogans, really human slogans, such as woman, life, freedom, that it will change uh, things over, you know, turn things right side up, actually, because they're upside down now. So, you know, when you look at the Islamic regime came to power by imposing the veil, here you have a woman's revolution that's removing the veil, that's burning the veil. You know, this beginning of the end of the Islamic regime is also the beginning of the end of cultural relativism, accusations of Islamophobia, because they no longer will have legitimacy when you're faced with a mass movement of young women and men who are saying, no, this is not our culture. Sharia is in our culture. The veil is not our culture. These are not rights. These are impositions. They're oppressive. What is our culture is actually woman life freedom and not wanting an Islamic state. So I think if you look at uh, the effect it can have, not just in the region, but also world, as I mentioned, because we've seen the rise of uh, fundamentalisms in its various forms across the globe after the establishment of an Islamic regime in Iran. 40 plus years ago, many of our countries looked very different and it's, it is as a result of the rise of this um, religious right movement. And so a challenge to it in one of the places which is its birthplace, really, in contemporary history, it will be hugely important. But as I've said many times, you know, no fight is guaranteed uh, to reach victory. We know that, you know, uh, there's a lot of risk, a lot of... Um, challenges and victory doesn't necessarily always come and so I think if we see the importance of this revolution now not just for people in the region but across the globe it's something that needs to be supported strengthened encouraged um, because it will have effects globally so you know I think people 
we should all play our part um, because it's it's an important thing that we are witness to and it can change the world really it can you know herald a new dawn as um, as they say and so we should be paying more attention to it and really supporting it in any way we can perfect um thank you so much for talking with me today thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your your courage and your bravery and your work and thank you so much for having me it's really important to have um, these conversations so we can just try to bring more attention to this important revolution and um, get more feminists involved in supporting it and standing up for it. So thank you for giving me this chance as well. Best wishes to you and your listeners. Thank you. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. We have been ad-free, sponsorship-free, wealthy investor-free, and fully independent since 2012. If you enjoyed this podcast and value independent women's media, by women, for women, no compromises, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.